everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to episode four on the Plus One podcast. And I just want to give a thanks to everybody that's been listening and tuning in and want to encourage everybody to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or check it out on Spotify, write a review, leave a comment, do whatever you got to do, spread it to your neighbors, spread it to your friends. We just uh, appreciate you guys listening. And, you know, it's really just me hanging out with my friends and talking music. But uh, I'm glad that people are enjoying it. I've been getting a lot of positive messages. And uh, in this time of quarantine, I know people are looking for ways to connect and uh, missing the music. I know I'm missing playing shows, missing Jazz Fest, and missing just connecting with people in general. So I'm thankful that I get to do this, talk with some of my friends, and, and to hear from you. So if you guys have any questions or suggestions, uh, hit us up, krazplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. I'd also like to shout out my partners, Osiris Media, who are always bringing music fans closer to the music that they love. So my guest today is one of my favorite singers, and in my opinion, one of the great rock and roll frontmen of all time. Um, For those of you out there that are fans of the Black Crows, you guys know that Chris is one of the few that can do what he does. Um, I've watched him in so many different settings in the last 10 to 15 years, of course, fronting the Black Crows. Um, we've played together in Phil Lesh and Friends. Um, we've done soul review shows with Soul Live, with Ivan Neville, with George Porter. Um, this past year, we did an event called The Tipping Point, where he fronted an 18-piece band, I think it was. And I've just never performed with somebody that really has the dynamic on stage uh, that he has. And I really think it's a, it's a natural thing. I think uh, you'll hear in this interview, he talks a bit about how he developed his style, but I think a lot of that was just in him. And I just love watching people with that natural talent, you know, do what they do. I was a huge fan of the Black Crows when I was a teenager. Um, I got to see them, uh, bought their records, and it's been interesting just watching him evolve. And then in 2013, uh, I was playing bass with the Tedeschi Trucks Band, and we did a, a tour with the Black Crows and got to see them every night and hang out with them, got to know Chris. And I was amazed at his uh, knowledge of music. He was showing me records from all over the map, jazz records. He was, we were talking about Cecil Taylor. He showed me Burt Janch um, and psychedelic, you know, UK music. Um, And it was just interesting to kind of see all the different layers to um, his musicality. And subsequent to that, I got to know Neil Casal and the guys in the Chris Robinson Brotherhood and saw them many times and did shows together and uh, also loved what they did. They obviously incorporated much more psychedelia, and um, we talk a bit about his songwriting partnership with Neil Casal and how that band developed and evolved up until last year where we lost Neil Casal, which was obviously a huge blow to all of us in this music community. 
In recent months, Chris actually reunited with his brother, Rich Robinson. The Black Crows have been through a lot of changes, and they've broken up many different times over the years. But they are planning a summer tour, and I got to actually see their first show back together uh, at the Bowery Ballroom in New York. It just lined up that I was there, and they killed it. Their music is timeless, and they've written some of the greatest songs in rock and roll that's come out in the last 30 years, in my opinion. So it was great to catch up with Chris and get a little bit of his thoughts on what's going on right now and see what he's up to. So without further ado, I'd like to present to you today's Plus One, Mr. Chris Robinson. Yeah, you guys had a lot of shows this summer that I'm assuming are all getting pushed back or canceled. I mean, they haven't canceled anything for June yet. So, right, right. That's good. I mean, the, you know, so we'll see. You know, I mean, I kind of let my anxiety go about everything. Like, yeah, you, you kind of have to. Yeah, I mean, it's like, so, you know, I have the, you know, it's me and Camille. <clears throat> we'll do whatever we, you know. It would be nice to get back on tour. It'd be nice to things be back to normal. And I think people yeah. will be wanting to boogie down, you know. Oh, I mean? for sure, for sure. When they have things were going so good, you know. I know, I know. I the band sounded great at the Bowery. I loved it. I mean, that was just day one too, right. you know. So I think by the time you know, we were <clears throat> supposed to be heading to New Orleans in a week or so for rehearsals for Jazz Fest. So Yeah. That would have been cool. I mean, it's, it's, I think once we get five or six shows under our belts, it'll start to be something else, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the energy was great. It sounded super tight. Yeah, it's cool to just focus on that music, you know what I mean? Without any other stuff. Like, no rigmarole, no. And that's the whole point. I mean, for me, the, one of the best parts about the whole thing was, you know, with all this, you know, music, blah, 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 everything's going on. It's like there's no rock and roll. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, the CRB, we got to, you know, be in a psychedelic band, to really be in a psychedelic band, to, you know, to live that sort of, create what we wanted to create in that kind of, you know, headspace. And then after like almost a, you know, solid 10 years of that to just like pump some rock and roll, it's like, wow. Yeah, yeah. And the world kind of needs it. You're right. You'd think there'd be more bands repping that to the fullest at this point but yeah i mean i think most people are well i mean for younger people there's always going to be an element of rock and roll but you know i mean you grew up with your heroes being guitar players and bands and like all this kind of stuff you know my writer is 16 and he's like dad kids don't care about bands you know what i mean like They like you know think a guy who plays a video game good is cool you know <laughs> so you know I saw I don't really watch this show but I've tuned into South Park a couple times and there was one that was called uh, Guitar Queero and it's pretty fucking funny they were these kids are getting so into Guitar Hero and then the dad notices that they're into it and he's like I know that song and it's like. I can't remember the song, but he he comes out and he play plugs his old guitar in and plays it, and they're like, "Dad, that's so nerdy." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would know how it. to do that. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. There's just it's just different. There's lots of cool. You know, it's like you know, we were in when we go to Amsterdam, we go to this jazz club all the time, and it's like they're all young kids and they're all playing. 
Well, you know, a lot of times they're playing like, you know, bebop and right. and they're playing all the standards and they're playing, you know what I mean? And they all have great chops and they're doing it, but it's like, it's funny. It's like, oh, but you're not, you're not, you didn't learn that music out of, you learned it out of interest instead of like life and death. You right. know what I mean? Right. Instead of like crazy, like, you know, when we started the Black Crows, it was like, what else? Is, you know, there's nothing else. You know what I mean? Like there was no other distractions. There was no other possibility. You know what I mean? I don't know if the other guys in the band, did, at least for me, you know right, what I mean? Right. Like this is it, you know? And some of that intensity and stuff is missing, I think. And, you know, it's like, where's that kill instinct? You know what I mean? Like, that's good, but where's that, you know? But it's different, you know? Like, you were, it was competitive, too, you know? You were competing for the same spots on the radio or on MTV or whatever with all these other rock bands, you know? Right, right. And that's that's what we knew. It's my brother and I would always be comparing records. And I also feel like to be a kid now, it's you're so distracted. I mean, I don't know. I just watch my nieces and, and other young people that I know. Well, there's, there. I mean, that's one thing. I mean... But there's also no rule, you know, and I think it's cool, but when I grew up, there were rules, you know, right. like there were rock and roll rules. <laughs> you know, like if you were a punk, you were a punk, dude. Right, you know right, what I mean? You right. didn't, like, think Iron Maiden was cool, too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and if you were a metal dude, you didn't like punk rock. You know what I mean? Now it's all just one big smorgasbord, which I think is cool. What was, did, did you have, like, a first band or first record that, kind of just like knocked you over the head and, and made you want to be a, a musician that, that you can remember? Like a well, we age. didn't want to, I don't think being musicians was, was a part of it. You know, we wanted to be in a, in a band, you know, that for us with being kids, we didn't really watch MTV the, or those kind of corporate bands. You know, we were into, I mean, we would watch 120 minutes on the weekend, you know, yeah, on Sunday nights. And, I think the hardcore punk scene in Atlanta made us realize like, oh, like, you know, there are young people doing DIY kind of bands and it's all word of mouth and it's all underground, uh, but anyone could do it. You know what I mean? That was kind of the, that was kind of the vibes. And then, you know, cause we were into so much different kinds of stuff, but then, you know, then REM like pops on our radar you know and you know like oh they have an englishness about them a post-punk thing about them an art school driven thing about them and they're southern and they have like a you know pete bucks playing a rickenbacker roger mcguinn played a right, rickenbacker right. you know what i mean like so the folk the folk rock stuff that we like with buffalo springfield and the birds and that kind of stuff all was in there love and spoonful and like all these like kind of 60s elements but it was modern and it was still outsider you know it was like this was before they had giant hits and stuff you know and the fact that they were from your area and i don't know if you knew them personally but the fact that you kind of could relate to like yeah these guys like from down the road and you know, that sometimes can inspire. Yeah, they could be in a band that, you know, beat Michael Jackson for best band of the year, like in 1982 or three or whatever in Rolling Stones. And they're, yeah, and they, they don't have to be in New York or, or Los Angeles. You right, know? right. It was like, oh, Athens, Georgia is like the hotbed of bands, you know. That's, in, yeah, and the interesting distinction, too, that you said there, too, is you didn't necessarily want to be a musician, but you wanted to be in a band. And like that, that's totally was me too. My brother was in a band and there was like, the reason I really 
started playing was I just wanted to hang out with like the cool dudes, you know, and just be around it. Yeah, we wanted to get it. You know, we were I was underage. We wanted to get into the the clubs to see the other the touring bands, you know, and our friends or whatever. So it was like it was a that was the other part of it. It's like oh, if I'm in a band that they won't really care that I'm a, you know, a year behind the drinking age or whatever, you know? Right, right. So that was another, yeah, the hang was a huge part of it. And it was, again, like, when you grow up in Atlanta, it's like good old boy shit or frat boy stuff. And um, we weren't that, you know what I mean? We were, we were definitely something else, you know, just as people. So all that, all the, the scene, you know, I mean, dude, Atlanta in 1980. 687 there were 30 bands that like played all the time you know what i mean like right and clubs and venues and all sorts of things you know what i mean like that kids today they <laughs> they wouldn't you wouldn't understand like you didn't go to nice restaurants you went to the you know you grabbed a burrito and you went to the gig you know and right, you hung out right. you know, that's what you did try to talk people into you know, buying enough Rolling Rock beers to get you drunk or whatever. <laughs> and what were what were some of the other bands like right around you that that you guys like were inspired by? I mean, REM was the, was, was big, the big, but one, we yeah. were really heavily into the Replacements, right? Right. And I mean, in our local, you know, it was also stuff. You know, there was and a lot of bands from our scene got signed, you know, driving and crying. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Kevin Kenny. Uh, they got their record deal first and they took our drummer. So, I mean, we love driving and crying, but you know, back then it was, you know, again, it was, I want that sandwich. I'm hungry. <laughs> it's like, fuck them. You know what I mean? Like they took our drummer and blah, blah, blah. They got a record <laughs> deal first. But then the guys that <clears throat> we shared a house with Mary, my hope, they got signed to Beggar's Banquet out of England and they were making their record. And, you know, and then we subsequently signed with, you know, American Records and George DeCoulias did that. Right, right. So even in our, you know, there were bands in Atlanta like Rock and Bones and rock, rock bands, you know, yeah. who were into like this kind of hippie <laughs> rock and roll, punk, you know, all these kind of things were all in in there so it was you know there were you know that was the other part of our scene is like all these bands around us but you know we would open for you know dream surreal and soul asylum and you know we we did a lot of gifts alex chilton and you know stuff like that right and were you guys hitting the road before getting signed or were you mostly just playing atlanta and playing in like no we i mean we would play you know Birmingham, Tuscaloosa, Nashville, Jacksonville, Florida, Raleigh, Charlotte, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, you know, so, and then we started getting gigs like in DC and then up to New York and that was our whole thing is, you know, working on the tunes. I mean, that's how we met George Reculius. We got a gig in New York in 87, maybe that was 88. And we drove up to play this club and, you know, 16 hours or whatever to go play this club. Right. And, you know, we called some friends. We stayed in some apartments. But we met George Duculius and he liked what, you know, he liked the cover tunes we were playing. And then he, he was like, oh, and then that's how that got started. So we would definitely, definitely get out. I mean, we'd play New Orleans and Jackson, Mississippi, stuff like that, you know, like college towns. I know some of your favorite singers are, this, you know, Otis Redding and 
the soul guys? Or was that was that in your house growing up? I know your your dad was a musician, a singer, right? Yeah. Was he? Did he? Did he kind of bring those records around? And not as much as as I mean, he had a lot of cool records. You know what I mean? But his, you know, yeah. Like I'm the one who bringing the P funk into the house. Right, you right. know what I mean? Like he didn't really wasn't hip to that. Although he would have like Johnny Guitar Watson records and yeah, yeah. you know stuff like that. But Jimmy Reed and uh, and things Jimmy like Reed. that. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was always the the record dude. You know what I mean? I was always and I always listened to, you know, I would listen to the the Cult Electric when that record came out. It was cool because they were repping some rock stuff. It wasn't just goth kind of thing. Like, oh, there's riffs and a little bit of attitude. But we would listen to that record, and we would listen to John Coltrane or Annette Coleman, and we would listen to Van Morrison, and just so much different music all over the place. But I think, you know, I love, I guess that's not true. I guess Sam and Dave's Soul Man was a record that, like, I don't think my dad really listened to that record, but it was in his stack of records. Right, right. And that was a huge, still love that record, you know what I mean? But that whole album, all those tracks... And I think just being Southern, you just, it's stuff is, you know, from George Jones and Charlie Rich to, you know, and then we had groups like Mother's Finest in Atlanta who right, right. I remember were like that. a multiracial rock band that played, basically they're just a funk band with guitars that were on the radio where we grew up because they were local. So they were always mixing genres and mixing things up, you know. And as far as like the inception of, of writing songs and and creating music in your house was it were you and rich kind of doing that at the same time or was it did one of you guys start it and then mother dude in the neighborhood that uh like a guy down the street played bass my cousin got a drum kit around the same time that rich and i got i played a little bit of bass and rich played guitar but the punk rock part of it you know we were like what are we gonna we're not we're not gonna sit around and learn other people's tune and we weren't gonna rich never took a guitar lesson and i know you know what i mean it wasn't we weren't like that we were just like you know here's some chords what can, how can we be creative with what we know you know there were some dudes in, in my school what was that guy's name who was into like oh he <laughs> he listened to bob dylan and he listened to some of that stuff you know um but we had that, that was it you know what i mean like when you're a kid again like you were saying kids today are distracted it was like we hadn't we're latchkey kids you know what i mean like right, right. mom and dad are like working and they have their own lives by the time i'm 17 18 yeah. and rich is 15 16 yeah we just you know wrote started writing and writing and writing and that was it you know so we were definitely songwriters before we were musicians and performers and stuff you know did you sing growing up did you were you like quiet in choir like when did you realize like holy shit i can do this like i can i can sing no 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 like you just, <laughs> just came out one day and yeah pretty much well no one else wanted to do it and i had the energy and the imagination for the ideas of like oh yeah, you know yeah. like so you know when we were teenagers it would be like i would sit down at the drums show you know this is the beat i would play the bass and then i realized well no one's singing and i'd be like well here's the lyrics so then i stopped playing the bass started singing but i didn't really have my sound you know i didn't want to i didn't really want to have a black sound either you know right, like right. soul sound and influenced by all that kind of stuff i just thought it would be in atlanta they would say i would be perpetrating you know <laughs> yeah i didn't want to be perpetrating 
Was it, did you consciously like like hone that sound, or was it kind of like did it just naturally kind of? It just, it, it's like everything came together in like in like twenty four month period, you know, of like once our, we wanted a little rootsier, harder sound, and with just growing, you know, just life in general, just more, you know, more late nights, more ex, you know, <laughs> more experiences, more of having an idea about. Rebellious, rebelliousness and rock and roll just toughened everything up, you know. And it was other people. I mean, the shit I liked was Sly, you know, growing up, you know, my dad had all of Sly's records. So <clears throat> singing all Freddie's parts really would be where my thing was. And like all the P Funk singers, you know, the, all of those vocalists are, are, I'm influenced by. And I listened to all that, but I really didn't start to incorporate it until someone was like, wow, you, you sound like Terry Reed or do you listen to Steve Marriott or do you listen to Paul Rogers or do you know Frankie Miller and those kind of English, you know, Rod Stewart, man. I mean, you know, Rod Stewart at one point in time was like the baddest cat on the planet. Oh yeah, you know? completely, completely. Um, so it was like that, you know, and then I was, if I'm like, I'm like, oh, I know who Humble Pie is because I knew 30 Days in the Hole from rock radio. But I would go, you know, I bought Performance Rock in the Fillmore. And I'm like, if someone thinks I sound like that, right. <laughs> it's like, holy shit, you know. Yeah, I would dig deeper into that. Right. People telling you sound like something makes you dig into that thing. Joe Cocker, Lil George used to come up and stuff. So I would be like, oh, all right. So expanded, you know, a lot of the things that I liked too, you know. Oh, and then it's like, oh, then there's you know thin lizzie and status quo and like all these kind of rock bands and i always loved aerosmith we loved aerosmith you know 70s aerosmith and you guys toured with them pretty pretty early on right yeah yeah in night night summer 1990 our was our first like arena tour opening for them what were they like at that time uh they were super sober at the time. They right, were right. hanging on to like, their sobriety. Right, right. And they were like in their own world of like, you know, they pulled their band back together and they had all those, started having all those pop hits. And, right, right. Um, but Steven Tyler gave me my first harmonica and showed me how to move around on it a little bit. They were cool. I mean, they wanted to fire us the first night. Like, <laughs> it was like, you know, our record was just starting to get a little bit of, sales thing happening that summer right and we would you know open for aerosmith and come out the first night we opened with like an eight minute like dirgy mid-tempo like song some new thing we'd written like that week wow <laughs> and they were like what's you going know, on? like crawling around the stage i like had a bowie knife or something and would stab it into the stage i don't know all this crazy stuff wow crazy <laughs> like they were like you're fired you know for day one that's funny and like it seems as I mean, of course, you guys were working at it for years, but you guys went clubs to, you know, theaters or maybe even arenas pretty fast, right? I mean, that wreck when Shake Your Money Maker came out. Yeah, uh, I mean, it took. It came out in March of 1990, and then by you know we sold our first million by December. Right. Right. And then from that December to the next December, we sold another $4 million, So Crazy. So it was, yeah, it was crazy. And MTV was crazy. You know, you're, you go from complete, just having anyone, please, someone listen to like being on TV nine times a day and everyone right. seeing your face. And, you know, so, but it was, 
It's exactly what you know we wanted to get in the game. You right, know? right. Like, let us in. Yeah. Get us up to bat. We'll see if we can hit one. You know? Well, I remember because during that time, I mean, Guns N' Roses was – that was like Guns N' Roses was kind of big. But a lot of the stuff – I mean, I remember – They were big. I, they, were, they were huge. They were the it biggest was... band right then, right? Yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, and I dug them actually. But I was really – I were was stadiums at that time. Right. Yeah. So much – I remember not – really buying a lot of new records. That was when I started, re- like, you know, that's when I was listening to Led Zeppelin and going back in time and playing, you know, going through my dad's records, but then finding my own thing. And when your guys' record came out, that was something I actually was like, holy shit, I, I like this and this is new. Um, and I think a lot of people felt that way, that it was something they could kind of relate to that wasn't like hairsprayed out and makeup and shit. And Well, I mean, the blues element of it makes it the root, you know, our, our, the difference between us and Guns N' Roses or us and even the, the, you know, the Seattle bands, right. I mean, even though rock and roll is blues based, even, you know, Nirvana or Soundgarden or whatever, we were, you know, I mean, Shake Your Moneymaker has an Otis Redding song on it. It has seen things for the first time, which is basically a Stax ballad. There's, you know, all sorts of, I mean, she talks to angels has a a real tip of the hat to like where a song like Wild Horses comes from, yeah. which is country music, and you know, so open tunings. Rich was using open tunings, which is a folk background. You know, all these different Nick Drake records, and <clears throat> you know, so the folk and roots part of what we were doing made it made it way different. I mean, still, it was like, oh, why would you know, Stone Temple Pilots come along and sell millions of records, and they have like a Zeppelin ass vibe to them. But they weren't listening to, you know, Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters, and they weren't listening to Skip James and, <laughs> you know, like Mississippi Fred McDowell. You know what I mean? Like, that's, <laughs> right, that right. wasn't their bag. No, no. So we had the best of, you know, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. It's like being into being, you know, you know, there's plenty of guys out there who can play great, and they're in successful groups, or they're doing whatever. But they don't—they don't even really like music that much. You know what I mean? It's like, or I don't know. To me, it's just always about more music. You know. Well, the crazy thing is that you can keep digging. You know, I remember spending that summer—the summer that I met you and I was playing bass in Tedeschi Trucks Band, actually. Um, I remember spending some time with you on the bus and stuff and I, you know, I'm, I'm constantly digging and, and you kind of flipped my wig a couple times with, you got me into Burt Janch actually, that was your fault and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. a few other records, Pentangle and that whole rabbit hole. Um, but that's the crazy thing is that I, I, we can keep, there's just so much music to keep, you can never stop digging. Yeah. Like lately I've been listening to like fifties and 40s and 50s and 30s like Colombian music and like <laughs> you know what I mean like um, all sorts of weird like Persian records from the from the 30s and like you know what I mean it, it, no matter no matter what there's something out there and it's also the universal you know message of soul you know like yeah. it doesn't have to be it could be anything if it speaks to you and it like gets you hooked and then you're like then you're forever inspired and you're forever keeping your your mind open your ears and your eyes open for something to inspire you you know i mean i i do that with new bands too 
You know what I mean? I mean, I was just as excited for the new Once in Future band to come out this week. Yeah. As anything. Or I can't wait for this new Lemon Twigs record. And, yeah, I like them a lot. You know, like every time White Fence puts out a record or, or whatever. You know yeah. what I mean? When did you fall into the Grateful Dead world? That's later, yeah. How did that happen? Because when we grew up, I mean, like I said, when you're when you're into fucking blues and like rock and roll, you know, like real and trying to find the most authentic pool to like swim in. Bob Weir in short singing Little Red Rooster at us. <laughs> that was dumb. You know what I mean? That was like that. That's that's not cool, man. Right, <laughs> like, right, right, right. There's nothing cool about that, you know. And it used to drive me crazy that kids and the scene that were into the Grateful Dead, that's all, you know, like we were just talking about all these genres and all these bands and all these musicians and all these artists. And they're like, I only like one, you know. I was yeah, like, yeah. I just can't understand that, you know what I mean? Like, um, I just can't get my head into that you know what i mean it's a it's like crazy right and so but around 1991 or the end of 90 i we had a a guy was working for me you know he was a security guard for me on tour and he one night he was you know he was like why don't you listen to the grateful dead and i was i'm pretty sure i said because that guy wears shorts when he sings uh Little Red Rooster, that'd be reason enough. <laughs> but he goes, no, seriously, you listen to so much 60s and 70s music and deep psychedelic acid music and all this stuff, but you don't listen to the dead? I was like, I didn't really know. You know, I'd never, in Atlanta, they didn't play the Grateful Dead like they did on the radio in the Northeast or out West. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? They, they didn't play that. So I didn't, I hadn't really heard you know those records and the guy gave me a working man's dead and you know by the time i'm through uncle john's band i was like oh this is all the things i like but it's completely different you know what i mean like there's all the roots music and jug band music and <clears throat> and all the druggy things that i like and it set the scene you know it opened up something that i didn't know and then you know it was about all of that time too where i really started to you know find my find my relationship with entheogen driven experience and psychedelics you know so it was like oh and then i went then well the other thing is we were really getting involved with the like legalization movement and stuff you know at the same time so it was like my pot dealer managed the Grateful Dead tribute band in Atlanta called the Dreadful Grapes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> nice. I never heard that one. And I, I always thought that was rad. So yeah. it was like, so there we were, and I went to my first show. They just happened to be coming through town, and uh, and that was it. You know, yeah. once I got in there and felt that energy of like, you know, sixteen thousand people at the Omni, everyone tripping their face off. I was like, oh, this is different. You know what I mean? This. It, yeah. That kind of 
you know, a Black Crow show, I, I just love the peacefulness. A Black Crow show was like, you know, Stones in 72. There was fighting and riots. Yeah, yeah, and like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, I would be scared to go to the Black Crows in 1992. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. Um, the energy was dark and, and serious and deep, you know, like... So that that was influenced too. Like, wow, this is you know people coming up and hugging me, and they didn't really you know at that time in life, being it when I would be at home in Atlanta, there were no famous people there really. You know what I mean? It's not like it was today, and so it was kind of like you know our the old Atlanta scene was like fuck you guys, <laughs> you know, for making it, and then some. And then the regular part of Atlanta who would be interested, we didn't really, you know what I mean? So to go to something where you, you know, people were happy to see you and you could walk around the whole gig and no one really cared. That was another thing like, wow, this is rad, you know? So then that just kind of got, it kind of got in there, you know? I also think seeing the band and yeah, seeing the band live and Grateful Dead isn't something you can just play someone a song and that does clicks for, you know, at least with me, it was kind of understanding it, um, the psychedelic elements and then just. It was about Jerry too. Yeah, for sure. sure. People today will forget like, you know, Bob used to come sing one and a lot of people would go to the bathroom. I mean, that's just a fact. (laughs) <laughs> it was very Jerry centric time, you know. And Jerry as a and Jerry as a player, it's like just so deep on so many levels. Him as a musician, just um, which I I kind of continue to unravel, you know, as I learn the music and and you know playing with Phil or whatever whatever situation. And I, as I dig into the music more, his layers are just there's just so many. You know, I mean, and, and 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 so you know, so unique. You know, that's the other part <laughs> that really influenced me about him. Like, oh no, no, no one. In the same way, Hendrix is. You know, Jimmy took it again in a much, you know, in an African mystic, the pain of the experience of racism and bigotry is in all, you know, the blues. You know, but where Jimmy's crying all the time, so is Jerry. You know what I mean? And his playing, he's crying, and his singing. And they're probably the only, maybe Jeff Beck is the same kind of guitarist in a way that's so singular, you know. But 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 Jeff Beck sounds more like Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton than than any of those other guys, you know. So yeah, there was a uniqueness, and but again, you know, it's like I've, I I I threw it in with everything else, you know what I mean? Like oh, there's where my jazz. I love you know a huge jazz. Uh, <clears throat> listener for many many years oh there's some I mean the Grateful Dead would be a horrible jazz group but there's some that's the part about rock and, rock and roll is you know it just takes a little dash it's the gumbo you know what I mean it's yeah. rock and roll you can you know if I was into if I played bluegrass that's all you get to play you know what I mean like if I play rock and roll I could throw in a little bit of bluegrass if I want you know I don't have to be a bluegrass player or you know that kind of thing you know, it's the perfect uh, tool for allowing all sorts of influences and stuff to get in there. How, how did you end up linking up with Phil like later, many, many years after that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I probably, 
mean, we played with the Grateful Dead the spring before Jerry passed away. Oh, really? I didn't know that. At Tampa Stadium, which was, you know, amazing. Crazy. And then Jerry, yeah, Jerry passed, and I had kind of sort of left some of that those vibes behind. <laughs> but I guess around, you know, when I'm, it was it was like my first solo stuff, the New Earth Mud times where like jerry's first solo record was like you know when you listen to there's a there's a song on the first new earth mud record called sunday sound and yeah like we were really trying for that sound you know that subsequently later in life betty Cantor jackson recorded yeah. engineered that record and then right, we right. would be working with her but, yeah, yeah. but then it started to come back around and uh and then somehow i mean i'm then i i saw them i was in toronto on tour with New North Mud and Phil and friends were playing and we went to the gig and we kind of met and stuff. That's when I guess Warren was in the band and Jimmy maybe and Baracko. Yeah, you know what? We opened that show. Soul Live opened that show. We were opening for them in Toronto. It was like the 2000, early 2000s. Yeah, like I don't even know if Ryder was born yet. Maybe. Yeah. I remember but, Jimmy uh, was in the band though, in Baracko. Yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then I got a call to come, uh, then I sat in with them and then, you know, then I got a call to work with Phil and that was, you know, a thrill. Um, yeah, so that was 2004, I think. Yeah. Um, and then when CRB was, what, 2010 did you guys start? So it was a, year, a few years after. 2011. Yeah, 11. started in March. And you knew you knew Neil Casal before that. How did you? Yeah, how did you link up with? Neil? I knew Neil from from the old rock and roll New York times because uh, he he knew one of my best friends. Uh, he and and a couple other guys owned this restaurant that was there for a long time on Fifth and uh, First called the Three of Cups. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that was like they had a rock and roll bar in the basement, and yeah, we were you know horrible little rock and rollers. But I met <laughs> I met Neil. Uh, he used to hang around there uh, and knew knew Santo Fazio. That's uh, who now has Fazio's Pizza in Brooklyn. Right, right. go go there. Um, and I met Neil then, and I really got to know Neil though in two thousand one when. Uh, we had the Beachwood Sparks open for the Black Crows, and Neil was playing guitar and singing oh, okay, right, right. Uh, in the Beachwood Sparks. And I mean, they're still my my dear friends and uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, and great songwriters. And uh, and we did that tour together, and that's kind of how Neil and I knew each other. Uh, and then he moved to Los Angeles around the time that I was getting this. I was going to, you know, do the CRB. I knew the Black Crows were, we were going to stop after 2010 because things were so dysfunctional and everything. <clears throat> and then that started. Yeah. And was that something that you and Neil kind of started together or did you already have like the vision for it? Well, Adam, I had Adam. You know? Right. So, right. you know, the 2009, 2010 Black Crows are, you know, sputtering away and dysfunction and, you know, kind of chaos and, there was no new music on the horizon. So I, and my music was different. You know, I didn't really, you know, Rich is the, the, the king of riffs and parts yeah. like that, you know, that are, that's the Black Crow sound. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was writing little pieces here and there that the Black Crows would use. But I want, you know, I wanted to do something. My real thing I wanted to do was start a local band in Los Angeles and see how far we could take it. Right. 
because I was still living in LA. So I had Adam, um, and we were discussing it. And yeah, Neil was the first, you know, besides Adam was the first one on board. And again, it wasn't so much for Neil, you know, we're starting a band. I had a handful of pieces of songs. So, you know, Neil and I, you know, day one started getting our repertoire together, you know, and I found him to be really easy to uh, compose with, you know what I mean? Because if I had something and it didn't need anything, he's the first person to say it's perfect, you know, or or if I like, hey, we need a middle eight here, then we'd get to work on it. CRB music was really ornamental and baroque in that way. Lots of little, you know, things that would pop up and only play that once. And what is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so that's where that started. You know, yeah, I I loved how you guys wrote together. You know, I, th- I thought it was really, really unique. Yeah, and then then that's you know that's where that gets started. And then the you know, I mean, I say it all the time. Like, I'm, we're still all numb from Neil's suicide and. You know, we didn't really expect the CRB to go away forever. You know? Right, right, right. Um, at least what that band was. And, you know, the main part of that is like, wow, you know, we wrote those songs, but Neil and I's voices together was also really, right. you know, the only other person I've ever would come close to singing like that with is my brother, you know. And the CRB's music was so different and the vocals, what would they... You know, just where they were placed in the in the architecture of the thing. It was like, you know, Neil and I's harmony singing was such a huge part of the sound. You know, that's another part that's like, oh, gut wrenching. You know, I know. Yeah, hearing that back must be. I've been I've been actually listening to Neil a bunch lately because I played on some of the. They're doing a bunch of his songs, re-recording it, and just going back to that stuff, and also just hearing what he's saying in a lot of it has been pretty intense yeah i haven't i haven't really been able to i mean i'm not listening i can't listen to the crb right now you know and and figure out you know what was that you know and and whatever you know neil's whole thing is it's still deep and i mean we have we have time to untangle it for ourselves and stuff but yeah i mean you're in rock and roll a long time you know Camille and I discuss it all the time. I mean, our whole lives have been outsider stuff. You know, the people we love are, you know, everyone's a little bit damaged. Everyone's, you know, they're sensitive, you know, smart, creative, imaginative people. But, you know, it's hard to, uh, and we've lost so many friends through, you know, drugs and madness and suicide and accidents and alcohol, whatever, you know. But, you know, that one was definitely in the, you know, in the big uh, picture of all the crazy things we lived through. That one was like, wow. You know? Yeah. No, it hit a lot of people and like so and so many people that I know, you know, loved him and, and played with him. And it's so crazy. It was so crazy the month or two after realizing that he touched so many people that I didn't even realize that I knew too. And it was just like, well, I said, yeah, which was always to me, part of the weird thing is like, you know, Neil had his solo career, which was fairly, you know, it was definitely on a smaller scale. And then, you know, being in a band like with someone like Ryan Adams was kind of more of, you know, it was a great gig for him and he contributed greatly to that, but that's a little more of a corporate gig, you know? Um, 
and and he didn't yeah he didn't get to play you know what i mean he never you know i mean when he joined the that when we started our band i was like dude he'd be like okay i think the solo is too long i'm like well double it (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's what we're doing this is what we're presenting um yeah so yeah it was that's even another thing of you know the black crows aside like we we invented the crb in that world and it opened up so many things for Neil people and relationships and, you know, music and experience and opportunities, you know? Yeah, it definitely was. I just kind of, the whole thing kind of blew my mind because I, you know, I played with him 24 or 32 hours before it all happened and I just didn't, just couldn't really accept it. I don't know if I have yet, but the whole thing is, is a little bit, it's hard to process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Again, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna survive many winters. You're gonna have to deal with some pain and sorrow. Um, but yeah, that one still, I've I've yet to, you know, I've yet to really. We still just kind of scratch our heads and cry a lot, you know. On a more positive note, um, <laughs> <laughs> one of one of my favorite summers of ever really was that that summer that you guys were out with Tedeschi Trucks Band, um, and I thought you guys were firing every night, and it was kind of cool to watch the the chemistry between the Black Crows and Tedeschi Trucks Band and London Souls. Now that yeah, I think yeah. about it, um, but. Uh, it, it seems to me that you guys were just in a really good place. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just projecting that because I I was having fun. But it seems like the, I agree. I agree with you. I mean, yeah. I think it's kind of like when we toured with Oasis and everyone was like, "Ooh, all the bands that hated you know the right. brothers that hate each other," and you get out there and we had an amazing time and made great friends forever. And with Tedeschi that tour, I think that was the thing too. Is like you know that's when that band is really taking off and finding what it's going to be in their presentation. You know what I mean? Like, right, the, right. so they're killing it. They're, you know, all these great musicians and it's like, okay, well we can't get, you know, I think that no matter what the black crows went through the majority of the time, we still put on a good gig, you know what I oh, mean? Yeah. We might get off stage and, not, and hate each other, but whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was definitely one of the. Yeah, I mean there there'll never be a better time than that. You know what I mean? It was incredible. The music was on. The music was top notch. The hang was top notch. Just couldn't have been better. Right, and it was the right balance. Like we were all hanging out and partying together, but nobody was <laughs> nobody was getting left in the bar or anything. Or no, no, no. <laughs> everyone was just old enough to like figure out where the line is. Uh, I mean, I do, I do remember, and I'm sad that he's not here too. I remember like Tedeschi tracks going on stage once and like Kofi had fall asleep on the bus and oh, missed yeah. the first two songs. And just oh, yeah. walked up there. <laughs> oh yeah. I was uh, like, that is, that is rad. Kofi, that whole experience of just being between the drummers and Kofi and behind Derek, like I, I kind of, call that time my my you know my years in Kofi University or my semester yeah, yeah. in Kofi University just hearing he and he just had this way of playing the most genius shit but so subtle and never was like trying to jump in front of anyone but just no no it no. was his his um his musicality was just on another level incredible yeah one of a kind yeah, yeah. unbelievable I'm just thankful for that time but, um, me too, me too. 
But it seems like, you know, hopefully uh, the Black Crows tour this summer actually happens. Um, the craziness that will hopefully subside. But the band sounded so fucking good in New York. I'm glad I got to see see that gig at the Bowery. It was like electric in there, man. Yeah, we're stoked, you know what I mean? Like, again, hopefully, you know, <clears throat> our world will somehow find its middle ground again. And, you know, my whole thing about the COVID thing is like, of course, people will take responsibility and deal. It's like the real the real thing that we've seen during this is just how helpless and how horrible our leaders are. I know. You know what I mean? I know. That really all you have to offer us is martial law. Right, <laughs> like at right. the end of the day. You know, right. This, you know, I know there's a lack of information in science about the whole thing, but just the chaos of, you know, your leaders coming from the top down, just being completely incapable of any pragmatic uh, decisions based on anything. It's, it's hopefully there'll be big changes you know culturally and politically after the fallout from this yeah i think so and i mean the fact you know you know the leaders of our government are just too self-serving to let any you know any decisions that's the point it's that self-serving like that keeping your job when your job is supposed to be protecting the people and giving them you know it's just crazy. I mean, the other thing is, too, it's like this day and age where it's a corporate-driven world about profits and, you know, about capitalism is like, you know, it's a strange thing to scratch your head and say, okay, well, it's the United States of America, and I don't know if the if the modern world is ready for the Great Depression again. You know what I mean? There's that part of it, too. It's like, hey, man, you know, musicians will all go down to the hobo jungle and, like, drink out of the same can and sing some songs, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's like, we're cool, <laughs> you know? We, we don't need much, you know? Yeah. Well, I hope people are able to come out to concerts again and, and that that fear doesn't linger. I mean, that's the other part of it is, I mean, that you know, because, again, these news and everyone, they want you to stay tuned so they can sell some commercial time but that yeah what you said is exactly right i mean human beings need you know germs to survive too i mean you know i think pretending like the whole world is supposed to be wiped down and we're all supposed to stay six feet from each other is just not how it's set up i mean yeah and that part does scare me a little that that's how people are going to people are going to get going to get used to that and that's going to become the normal and wearing masks is going to be kind of the basic forever you know, yeah i don't I, get it i mean we all gotta go sometime i hate to sound callous but yeah. if you you know what i mean it's like i hope that you know i hope somehow we don't all have to live in a bubble you know yeah yeah but we have a lot we have a long ways to go you know so well the one thing about kind of everything slowing down right now that you know mother earth is is actually loving it to a certain degree um, completely you know um, and maybe it's something, and I've talked about this before, that uh, people decide to do on purpose because they're they're starting to see not only the benefits that are happening environmentally, but just people spending a little time slowing down and hanging out with family and just kind of shutting shutting down a little bit. Yeah, like I said, luckily, I feel so lucky to you know, to be in a place like Marin, West Marin with my love, you know what I mean? It's just like, exactly. 
But it's, you know, I guess the other cool thing about technology, it's so much easier to keep in touch with all your peeps all over the place, you know, because yeah, yeah. that's the way the world works now, too. You know, my friends are in France and Spain and England and Holland and Germany and, you know what I mean? Not just our friends here, New York and Atlanta and Austin and, you know, it's so just got to fight the good fight. You know what they used to say where I grew up in Atlanta, man? can't get to it unless you go through it you know what i mean <laughs> that's for sure that's for sure <laughs> um well man i thank you so much for for spending the time talking with me on the on the podcast and whatnot and i really am looking forward to seeing the band this summer i was actually coming planning to come to red rocks to see y'all so i, I hope that still happens yeah yeah but, me too yeah, i mean it's the best place in the world to see some music. Yeah, I love that spot. I love that spot. It's easier to watch the music there than to actually perform it with no oxygen, but we won't <laughs> I know, I know. I, yeah, <laughs> I've been through that, too. Um, all right, man. Well, send my best to Camille and uh, and the pup. Bam? Is the, What's the name of your pup? Bam? Name Bami Longface. Bami. Bami Longface. Uh, <laughs> give her a hug for me, and I hope to see you sooner than later, man. You know that, man. Be safe out all right, there. Brother. Well, that was great to catch up with Chris. I want to thank him for being on the show. And I want to thank all of you for listening. And again, give us a subscribe. Give us a review. Send us some comments. Again, crazplus1 at gmail.com if you want to hear from anybody or you want to ask me some questions. And uh, again, you can check us out on Instagram at krazplus1, K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E, or on my Instagram at Eric Krasno. We've got a lot of really great shows coming up, a lot of great artists and performers that we're going to have on the show. But first, I'd like to play a song that uh, the Chris Robinson Brotherhood used to play a lot on the road. This is one of the staples in their sets, and this one's called Rosalie.
Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Mm-hmm.